All right, we inaugurate this examination of Paul's letter to the Colossians by considering matters of introduction and background. With respect to the epistle itself, we want to talk a little bit about apostolicity and authenticity because the author, I put a question mark there, the author of this epistle you all would say, I imagine, is Paul the Apostle. Now, how do you know that? Uh, Because you've been taught that, because the church has said that, because the title Paul is over the letter in your English Bible. How do you know that Paul wrote it? The Bible tells you so. How do you know, Randy? What, What part of the Bible tells you so? What part of Colossians tells you? You're right to answer that way. But how do you know? Okay, first verse. The first verse uh, says Paul, and then verse 2 says to the saints. All right, so that would suggest the presumption that Paul is the author. Any other place? Okay, if we turn to verse 18 of chapter 4, you notice that Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. That would suggest that at the beginning and the end, he is the author. Any other verse? Let me direct your attention to verse 23 of chapter 1. Notice the last phrase in that verse. I, Paul. So he's identifying himself on three occasions in this letter as the author of it. Now, of course, uh, you answered the Apostle Paul when I asked you who wrote it because that's what you've been taught or that's what you believe, but you're also coming from the background of, shall we say, more evangelical or conservative Protestant upbringing, and so you've never been led to doubt that unless you've been in a university New Testament course or a liberal theological seminary New Testament course as I was educated, and you've been told Paul didn't write it. And the majority of liberal and mainstream denominational pastors don't believe Paul wrote it. For all liberal higher criticism, that is the higher criticism of the Bible, denigrates Pauline, Pauline authorship of this epistle and other New Testament epistles, including the epistle to Ephesians. They regard them as pseudonymous, that is. They regard them as written by somebody who pretended to be Paul, falsely borrowed his name, and tried to copy his style. Now, if that is the case, then, of course, the person was a liar. But we then have a book or several books of the Bible, and incidentally, they believe this is true of Old Testament works as well, They have many books of the Bible that are written under false pretenses. But that is standard protocol in mainstream theological seminaries, mainstream theological commentaries. Virtually the majority of the liberal school does not believe in Pauline authorship of Colossians or Ephesians. Why? Well, because in Colossians there are words in this Greek letter that do not appear anywhere else in Paul's letters. In other words, he uses Greek terms once 
only here. And if he's the author, he certainly wouldn't have done that, would he? He would have used vocabulary that was common to his other authentic epistles, right? It depends on the audience. It depends on the context. It's saying that a person can't write an epistle using vocabulary which is unique. In other words, he can't use different vocabulary. If he does, then he didn't write it. It seems to me a uh, somewhat suspicious, or I should say suspect, stylistic approach. But nonetheless, that's one way that they attack Pauline authorship. Now, the second way is much more interesting. They say there's no future eschatology in this epistle. That is, they believe that this epistle speaks only of a realized or now eschatology. There is nothing in the epistle that suggests a not yet eschatology. In other words, the kingdom of heaven has come and Paul is preaching that or this writer is acknowledging that. But that now element of the kingdom of heaven is all that is present. That's all there is. There is no future not yet element. There's no future not yet eschatology. No future not yet heaven or hell, etc. So what do you do with that kind of uh, conviction? What do you do with that kind of affirmation? In other words, it's an inaugural eschatology It's not a semi-eschatological paradigm of a now-not-yet tandem. All right, you're following with me. This language of eschatology may be foreign to you or new to you, but it is standard language in the discussions of the issues in the epistle. All right, so the critics, the higher critics, liberal critics, stylistic critics, are arguing that the eschatology here is all wrong. In a real Pauline letter, you have a now and a not yet. In Colossians, you have a not now, but not a not yet. Is that true? Let's take a look at verse 5 of chapter 1. Where is the hope laid up that the writer describes? Is that a future or a present eschatology? Definitely future. Future and present, right? Heaven is there now and heaven is there in the future. So the testimony here in the first verse to the hope laid up in heaven suggests a future eschatology as well as a present. What about verse 27 of this first chapter? Christ is the hope of glory. Where is glory? Heaven. Heaven again. Present and future glory? Yes. Chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, our life, is revealed, you will be revealed with it. Revealed from where? In glory. In glory in heaven, correct? All right. So once again, a future eschatological suggestion. And finally, verses 24 to 25 of that third chapter, 
knowing that you will receive a reward of the inheritance of the Lord Jesus whom you serve, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong of what he has done, and that without partiality when? At the final judgment, which is a future eschatological reality. All right, there are enough indications then within the epistle itself that the writer believes in a present and a future eschatological expression or manifestation. He believes that he lives now in the provisional realization of the kingdom which the Lord Jesus Christ has brought in its fullness, but there is a consummate dimension which lies in front of the believer, namely the final resurrection of the dead, judgment, and an eternal uh, body-soul life in heaven or in hell, as the case may be, believer or unbeliever, respectively. All right, so we can set aside that objection as we examine the epistle carefully. Nonetheless, it is a unshakable tenet of liberal higher criticism of the epistle to the Colossians. So if you hear this, you will know where it comes from. You will know that it is common coin in those circles. All right, now, I've given you a note on the most recent superb defense of Pauline authorship of Colossians. It's in a journal called the Bulletin for Biblical Research. You won't be able to find it online unless you have access to the academic databases in some form or another, particularly the EBSCO databases. But nonetheless, uh, Maria uh, Pascuzzi, who is Italian, has written a brilliant article on the the authenticity of the Pauline authorship of Colossians, and she wrote it uh, three uh, plus years ago, so it is very up-to-date with the critical discussion. It's a masterpiece, and so I place it in the uh, discussion so that you know that there is a scholarly answer to this cribbing, uh, to this caterwauling about Pauline authorship of Colossians. It can be defended, and she does an excellent job of doing it. All right, any questions? What's that word you use? Caterwauling. Complaining. Never heard that. Uh, It's a Western Pennsylvania-ism. Now that makes sense. Okay, now, the next question of uh, introduction is canonicity and authority. Was the book recognized as authoritative scripture and therefore folded into the canon of the scripture that was recognized by the early church? Well, we'll begin with the heretical early church. We'll begin with Marcion in the middle of the second century, about 140 A.D. Marcion became a Christian in Rome uh, sometime before 140, and as a result of becoming a Christian in that city, he began to diverge from the traditional understanding of what the gospel was. He then began to develop his own system, and he became an apostate heretic in the middle of that second century A.D. He was condemned by the church and excommunicated, 
but in the process, he had formed his own canon. He didn't like the Old Testament at all, so he rejected it in toto. He believed that the God of the Old Testament was a God of hatred, war, and uh, judgment, and he didn't like that kind of God. His God that he liked was a God of love. He also got rid of three of the four Gospels. The only Gospel that he liked was the Gospel of Luke, and he even edited and abridged it. He didn't accept all of the Pauline epistles. Once again, his canon was, you know, if there's judgment in them, that makes them suspect. But he did acknowledge that Colossians was canonical. And so, getting testimony from your enemies being the strongest kind of testimony, Marcion, an enemy of Orthodox Christianity, testifies to the canonicity of Colossians. He even had it in his canon, his reduced canon, but nonetheless his canon. That's a mark in favor of the canonicity, that is, that the church recognized the authenticity of Colossians by the Apostle Paul in the mid mid, uh, second century A.D. All right, so much for the enemies. What about the friends? Well, the Orthodox Church published a fragment which discusses the canon at, the, at about 170 A.D. It's the Muratorian fragment, and we've discussed this before. You can see it at the link in my series to the Epistle of Jude, so you can go online and read that document. But I'm going to read the pertinent phrase here with respect to the Orthodox treatment of the New Testament canon, particularly with respect to Paul's letters. Here's what the Muratorian fragment of 170 A.D. says. The blessed apostle Paul himself writes to no more than seven churches by name in the following order. And then he begins to list Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians. Colossians is in the list. So with respect to the authenticity or recognizing that this was an authentic Pauline epistle, the church of the second century, even the heretical church of the second century, recognized that Paul was the author and the epistle belonged in the canon. Now, I should note that there's no argument today, even amongst the liberals, over whether it belongs in the New Testament or not. So even though they don't think he wrote it, they're allowing it in the New Testament. That may seem somewhat contradictory. I think ultimately it is. But nonetheless, you have to have PhDs to get this kind of, not to believe this kind of nonsense. And of course, that means you get to publish books and collect all kinds of royalties, etc. Any questions? All right. Now, some of you like to uh, buy a commentary as we go through these uh, books of the Bible, as we've done for the last almost 12 years. And uh, I, I... I choose a brief commentary oriented to a layperson as a recommendation, and you'll see it there. It's actually the original Tyndall uh, commentary series from InterVarsity Press by Herbert Carson. Uh, there is a newer version of this series by N.T. Wright, who is not trustworthy. Not trustworthy. Do not be fooled. N.T. Wright is an apostle of the new perspective on Paul, does not believe in the inspiration of the Bible, does not believe in the Lutheran and Calvinistic doctrine of justification by faith alone. He does not. He has repudiated it. So I cannot commend N.T. Wright in any way 
Unless you know what's underneath what he's doing, you will be fooled by him. It's just like if you don't understand what's underneath Bonhoeffer, you will be fooled by him. Bonhoeffer is a John the Baptist to the death of God theologians of the 1960s. Those were his students. There's something wrong with Bonhoeffer. He's not an evangelical. And N.T. Wright has made it clear that he's not an evangelical. All right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, no friend of orthodoxy. Ask Cornelius Van Til, Randy. I don't know that much about it. Randy, Cornelius Van Til wrote a brilliant article on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Westminster Theological Journal, back in 1972. Anyway, Palmer's, I'm sorry, Carson's commentary is uh, brief and uh, decent and would be helpful if you are interested in having uh, something to hand on your shelf. All right. Now, as you know, one of my approaches to the Scriptures is the narrative approach, namely that there is a story behind every document in the Bible, Old and New Testament alike, and that that narrative draws the writer into the drama of divine revelation. God reveals himself to that individual in terms of that individual's story context, if we may put it that way. That means that revelation enters history, even as the Son of God enters history. And he makes that history part of his own story. He accommodates himself to time and space. The writers of the Old and New Testament, under the inspiration of divine uh, revelation, are drawn into time and space in a way that opens up the mind of God. Therefore, the narrative is part of the revelatory vector, the revelatory process. And it is that drama, it is that vitality, which makes the scriptures alive even now. You are drawn into the story of the text, even as you're drawn into the Christ, who is the ultimate story of the text. That's the eschatological narrative. Now, this dramatic approach, used with respect to the Colossian epistle, begins with the story of the church. And we already know Something about the story of the church. How do we already know? That is, those of you who have been with me for years, how do you already know the story of the church or something of the story of the church? Not Acts. I've never done Acts. Not Jude. That doesn't help with Colossians. Philemon. Philemon helps with Colossians. Yes, I did the series on Philemon. So we already know a little bit about this church because of Philemon. You have the link there on your outline if you're not familiar with it. Where did Philemon live? Okay. He lived in Colossae. Where did the church meet in Colossae? It met in Philemon's house. That is correct. If you turn to Philemon... Verse 2, you will notice that Paul 
commends the church in his house. Now, it is interesting that there may have been more than one worship place in Colossae, but nonetheless, we do know about the one in Philemon's house. And when we did that series, you may remember that when Theodore of Cyrus, the church father of the 5th century, was writing, he was writing his commentary on the epistle to Philemon, and he said, the house is still there. 400 A.D. Now, of course, that's his testimony, but I don't have any reason to doubt it. It's not there anymore. It's underneath this mound, if it's if it if so, if it's anywhere. But at any rate, um, we have the house church of Philemon in Colossae, which is the church to which Paul is writing. Now, who are some of the members of this church? We even know the names of some of these people. In other words, we've got a storyline here. We've got people's lives here. These are real flesh and blood people whose lives are invested not only in this church, but in this city. The story is part of the drama. The lives have a story, which are part of the drama. The revelation, which draws them into the divine story, is part of the drama. Of the, of the epistle, of the letters. Okay, what, what are the names of some of these members of the church besides Philemon? Who else is there? Archippus. Who else? Aristarchus. Who else? Epaphras. Yes, Epaphras. And one other, a lady. Apphia, perhaps. Philemon's wife, most likely Philemon's wife. And they're listed there in the epistle to Philemon, and some of the names are repeated here in the epistle to the Colossians. All right, so we know a little bit about the church in terms of location, the fact that there was a worshiping congregation in that house. Philemon was the owner of that property, the owner of that house. He offered his church He offered his house to that body of believers, and we know the names of some of them. So, which epistle was written first? Does Paul write to Philemon first, or does he write to the Colossians first? And how do you know? And what do you say? Which was first written? Philemon was first written, and how do you know, Marge? Do you have a place in Colossians which suggests that? Very good. You are on the right track. Very good. Chapter 4 of Colossians, verses 8 and 9. Tychicus is being sent, and along with him, verse 9, Onesimus. So he's already established his relationship with Onesimus as a role of testifying about Onesimus coming to him in Rome with the epistle to Philemon. And now, in Colossians, he's indicating that he's sending Onesimus back, even as he had indicated the same at the end of Philemon, but nonetheless, he had that one in hand before this one is being delivered as well. So, the... uh, the, the 
accepted process here is that Philemon precedes Colossians on the basis of chapter 4, verse 9. All right, now, where was Colossians written, even as Philemon was written? In, in Rome, while Paul was in prison. So, Colossians and Philemon are part of the what epistles? The prison epistles, correct. And what are the other two? Ephesians is one. And, and there are two more. Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and... Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, and... Philippians, yes. Those are the four prison epistles. In each of them, Paul testifies to being in prison. And that is true here in Colossians 1, verse 7. He talks about his fellow bond servant. That's a strong Greek word. Bond servant here means someone that is in prison or in fetters. Okay, now... What about this Colossian church? The story of this congregation, which includes a runaway slave, includes a fairly wealthy man who opens up his home to a church body, to a worshiping community. Uh, What about this uh, congregation, which is receiving a letter from prison, a prisoner? Did that prisoner who wrote the letter begin the church? Did Paul establish this church in Colossae on one of his three great missionary journeys? Kay says Paul did not. Do you agree with Kay? Any any naysayers? Kay, how do you know? Chapter 1, verse 7. Yes, very good. What else? Do you have any 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 other ammunition for your uh, defense of your statement? Your statement is right. Only what you told me, that's all. No, you're not going on what I tell you. We're going on what the text says. If you're going to do detective work, you got to work out of the text, right? What does the text say? I don't have my notes from that. I don't, I don't remember. Kay's on the right track. She pointed out verse 7. The commendation of Epaphras. But there's something even stronger. Take a look at the first verse of chapter 2. What's that tell you? They'd never seen his face. He had never been there. Paul had never visited Colossae. It might seem strange. We'll look at the maps in a little bit. But his testimony here, during his imprisonment, he's already imprisoned in Rome. This is late in his career. His testimony here is that he had never seen them. He had never been there. He didn't plant the church. He's the evangelist that plants the church in Philippi. He's the evangelist that plants the church in Thessalonica. 
He's the evangelist that plants the church in Corinth and so on and so forth. He's not the evangelist that plants the church in Colossae. Who is? Marge? Epaphras. It's Epaphras, as verse 7 of chapter 1 indicates. They learned the gospel from Epaphras. He's the evangelist. Now, we want to ask the question how that came about, but nonetheless, Paul did not. And he says so. This epistle is a product of the hand of the great apostle to a congregation that he never saw while he was alive. He is writing to them on the basis of reports that have been given to him by people from Colossae like Onesimus, Aristarchus, and others. That means that this letter is unlike any other letter that Paul penned. Never in his lifetime did he see the members of this congregation except those that came to him when he was in prison in Rome. Every other congregation he knows firsthand, and that includes Rome, even though he writes his epistle to Rome before he visits the city. He is known to the Roman Christians at last. He is never known face-to-face to the Colossian believers. Now, that means that there's something unusual abroad here. It means that the narrative and the narrative element takes a slight twist. The narrative element of Philemon is that Paul introduces himself into the story of Philemon and Onesimus' slave because Onesimus finds him out in Rome, in prison. Paul then begins to be drawn into the story drama of that narrative. Why did Onesimus run away? How has he come to Paul? How did he come to Christ? What's he going to do after he came to Christ and goes back to Colossae to Philemon? There's a full-blown interpersonal narrative there. Because of the contact the apostle has with the individuals. But here, here the narrative doesn't have that same substance, that same undergirded foundation. Here, the narrative is going to have to depend on something in Paul himself. It's going to have to depend on something in Paul's narrative. Paul is not going to be able to say, I am folded down with my life unto you in Philippi, unto you in Thessalonica, unto you in Corinth. He's not going to be able to say that in the sense of face-to-face, interpersonal uh, relation. So then how is he going to draw them into the narrative that is the supreme of all, supremest of all narratives? He's going to have to keep Christ at the center 
of the narrative of the church, even as Christ is the center of the narrative of the Apostle Paul. In other words, Paul is going to draw them into his story as he draws them into the story of the risen and glorified Christ because that's the point of connection. That's the point in which their lives in Colossae mesh with his life in Rome and the life of the risen Christ at the right hand of glory. Now, you can say that is implicit elsewhere in his letters. I will grant you that. But here, remember, he never saw them interpersonally. And so he has to bridge that gap. How is he going to do it? How is he going to get them to sense the very same drama that he sensed in his interpersonal confrontation or meeting encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road? Keep in mind, that is the change in Saul of Tarsus. That appearance of the risen Christ stops him dead in his tracks and makes him a Christian on the the point, at the point. This congregation has to be drawn into that from this prisoner who never saw them, nor will he ever see them. But he yearns for them to experience the very same narrative that he experienced, namely union with Christ. So that in this epistle, over and over again, he will say, in Christ, with Christ, into Christ, it is Paul's favorite term of mystical union, being joined unto the life of Jesus risen at the right hand of glory. That is where your life is. Now, there is a story for all time. There is a narrative which never ends because it is an eternal narrative. There is an identification which is unbreakable. Union with Christ... You united to him, Paul. It's because he united himself to you, Paul. Will he sever that bond? Will he break that union? Will he divorce you and set you asunder? No, never, not ever will he do that. Your in Christ union is as secure as his union with his father ineffable and eternal. So this narrative angle with respect to the Colossians places a challenge before me as it places a challenge before you to hear the heart of the narrative in the heart of the apostle himself. All right, we will try to unpack that as we go through the letter. It is my responsibility to attempt to come to grips with that. At least that is my opinion about what is unique and singular about this letter. For every letter of the apostle is singular in its own right. And it's my job, it's the job of the interpreter to find that key.
All right. Whether I succeed or not, that's another matter. <clears throat> when was the church started? You'll notice that I've given the answer there <clears throat> because this is the general evangelical or conservative biblical time frame <clears throat> for the uh, <clears throat> inauguration of the Colossian congregation, sometime between 52 and 56 A.D. <clears throat> now, Ben Witherington at Asbury Seminary in uh, Kentucky and F.F. F. Bruce, the late F.F. F. Bruce, uh, <clears throat> great British evangelical scholar of the last century, all generally agree on this <clears throat> and their New Testament histories, which are excellent uh, technical, uh, not technical, but uh, excellent uh, summary uh, treatments of the history of the New Testament era, uh, agree on this point. Now, why do they say 52 to 56 A.D. for the foundation of the Colossian church? We already know from our previous question that Epaphras is responsible for launching this congregation. Why this three to four year period, 52 to 56? What's going on in the career of the apostle at this time? Mid-first century A.D. Well, the answer to that question is he's in Ephesus. And there, as you know, he's a tent maker. And he is preaching day in and day out for about three years. And so the Ephesian ministry in this period, 52 to 56, is the time frame in which Epaphras came to Christ himself. For obviously he can't preach the gospel, teach the gospel, evangelize the Colossians unless he himself is in Christ and Christo. Where did he get it? Logically, he got it from finding Paul in Ephesus and listening to the gospel from his mouth. That's the reason he's commended both in Philemon and in Colossians. That's the reason that he is the evangelist who teaches this congregation, establishes this congregation, founds this congregation. That's the period in which it's most logical that the Colossian congregation got its start. Right now, the second date is the date of the letter. Congregation was started in 52 to 56. The letter is written 60 to 62. Why 60 to 62? Because that's the traditional date of Paul's so-called first Roman imprisonment. You remember the book of Acts ends with him in Rome. He's been arrested and transported. So in between 56 and 60, Paul has gone back to Corinth. He's gone with the Corinthian offering towards Jerusalem. He's been arrested and imprisoned for two years at Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. So there's a good bit that has occurred between 56 and 60. And finally, he has been transported to Rome and placed under house arrest there in the city of the Seven Hills. 
Now, we say the so-called first Roman imprisonment of Paul because in order to account for the dates of the pastoral epistles, which are First and Second Timothy and Titus, and the travel logs which the apostle presents in those three epistles, namely that he once again was out doing missionary and evangelistic work. <clears throat> there is an interim between the first and second Roman imprisonment, <clears throat> the second imprisonment occurring under the Emperor Nero in 64 to 68 AD. And in that second imprisonment, the apostle Paul was beheaded, as was the apostle Peter under the Neronian persecution of 68 A.D. Now, that's the uh, traditional uh, dating scheme for the life of the apostle uh, after his conversion um, sometime in the 30s on the Damascus Road at 30 A.D., not 30, but in the 30s A.D., and his career from that point on, particularly with respect to this epistle. So it gives you a little idea of the uh, chronology of his life, although the second uh, imprisonment is hotly disputed and the liberals reject the Pauline authorship of the pastorals. Once again, they regard them as pseudepigraphal, written by someone who pretends to be Paul, and therefore they don't fit the chronology because Paul probably died in Rome closer to 62 than to 68. All right, any questions about that? That raises some issues of trying to figure out what the timeline is in the apostle, and and there can be honest disagreements about some of that because, of course, we don't have any firm dates in the New Testament. Nonetheless, we can infer dates on the basis of what's said in the book of Acts about how long he was in certain places, particularly in Ephesus and in Caesarea. Was there a question, Randy? Do we have any idea how old Paul was when he died? Um, I'm trying to remember what the guesstimate is of his birth date. Um, He was perhaps in his late 60s because he's born close to uh, zero or a little bit before. Keep in mind that he's a student of Gamaliel in Jerusalem for probably a good many years. He's a rabbi in his own right, or at least he's trained in the rabbinical schools, and that takes a good bit of time. So the Damascus Road places him uh, in his 30s, which would mean this 62, 68 would be in his 60s. That, that's, that's the best uh, guess from, on, on uh, conservative or evangelical scholarship. You're welcome. Okay, well, let's take a, a little break here, and we'll come back to talk a little bit more about the uh, narrative of the city, much of which will be based upon Cadwallader's frag- facts or fragments of Colossi volume. So we begin with the narrative of the city itself, and its geographical location. The links are to Internet sites which show you pictures, colored pictures of Colossae, some of which 
uh, I've already showed you with Cadwallader's volume. My review of that volume is there on the KVIRX website. One of the pictures that's linked there on your handout shows Mount Cadmus snow-covered, and it's quite lovely, even as we're used to seeing the lovely Olympics or Cascades covered with pristine snow. Beautiful. All right, with respect to the narrative of geographical location, we begin with the Roman province in which Colossae was located. And if you take that map, you'll notice the province of Phrygia, which is about in the middle of Asia, ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And if you look down to the left, you'll find Colossae underneath Laodicea and Hierapolis. Any map of the Roman provinces would show you that location. So it's a Phrygian town. And the second map comes from Edwin Yamauchi's New Testament Cities in Western Asia Minor, page 136. Uh, Yamauchi, great evangelical scholar. Uh, we had him here lecturing several years ago. Uh, high view of Scripture, high view of Christ, brilliant fellow has written a number of books, on, not only on the New Testament, but on Persia, which are excellent works. <clears throat> anyway, he gives a, a map of the tri-cities, so to speak, that is Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. <clears throat> and he allows you to see the <clears throat> river, which is important to the story of Colossae, and actually the story of the whole region, namely the Lycus River, <clears throat> which comes from a Greek word which refers to wolves, it's the Wolf River, if you will. And it's, it's named that way because of its ferocity. Uh, it's somewhat narrow, and particularly as it comes through Colossae, through narrow ravines and gorges, it can actually, uh, during the uh, melting season, it can become quite a raging torrent. Uh, if, you, if you've seen the Colorado River uh, at the heights of its fury, it would be the same kind of thing for the Lycus. <clears throat> Well, the uh, contiguity of the Lycus to Colossae flows right by, and in that picture I showed you earlier, it's in that valley in between the mound and the mountains, which is it's not visible in the portrait, but nonetheless you get an idea of how close it was. Now, the other thing to note here is <coughs> Hierapolis and the Pamukkale, as it's pronounced, uh, which... Uh, <coughs> Yamauchi put on the map for particular purposes. <clears throat> Laodicea, which is one of the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Laodicea was probably the finance center of this region, a very wealthy uh, city. Hierapolis was the health resort city. <clears throat> and the health resort came from thermal springs that were present in that region, and these springs gave forth car calcium carbonate. And if you know what calcium carbonate is, it's bright white. And <clears throat> this condensation of the vapor from the springs and actually the water that flowed up out of the springs, which is heavily uh, <clears throat> saturated with calcium carbonate, it would dry out <clears throat> on the outside of the banks so that 
Pamukkale in uh, Turkish means cotton castle. It's bright white, and you can see it for miles. It's actually quite large in its extent, and it's still present there today as it was in the time of the apostles and the time of the Colossian church. So if you're interested in looking at it, you can find it on the Internet. But uh, Hierapolis was distinguished for its thermal springs and also for this calcium carbonate effluent, which condensed on the banks and and also on the uh, so, some parts of the plains. <clears throat> there was a comment in one source that said that on a clear day, if you had the right uh, atmosphere, you could actually see that uh, cotton castle or the, the whiteness of that cotton castle from Colossae. I'm not sure about that. I think it was probably true of Laodicea. At any event, <clears throat> uh, if Laodicea is kind of the financial center of this region, and Hierapolis is the uh, the uh, <clears throat> health resort center of the region, what does that leave for Colossae? Well, Colossae is probably one of the trade centers of the region, and we'll comment as to why that was true in a moment. <clears throat> because the industry which is next on our list, was the industry of, was the leading industry of the region, namely the making of textiles, particularly cloth, which was woven out of wool. So the production of clothing, weaving cloth, dyeing cloth, Colossae was famous for a red-purple colored wool and the garments that were made out of it, And this material was traded across the ancient world. So uh, there were trade routes that flowed or went through Colossae uh, carrying their textile products uh, to the rest of the world, which means that commerce was a large part of the prosperity of the city of Colossae, and it was a prosperous city. <clears throat> when uh, this mound is excavated, uh, if it's ever excavated, they're going to find a great uh, deal of uh, wealthy treasures, that is, monuments that are broken and, <clears throat> and have been flattened, and evidence of other uh, prosperity <clears throat> of this city because it was a wealthy city, not only because of the trade in the textiles, but also because of its agricultural industry. This was a fertile valley, the Lycus Valley, and it produced uh, grains and fruits in abundance. Now, Colossae is also on a route. In other words, this commerce and industry has to flow somewhere in order for the uh, profits or the wealth that's produced from that commerce to come to the benefit of the city. So the route on which Colossae was situated was an important trans-Asia Minor route, a road that extended from Ephesus on the west coast to Euphrates River on the east side of ancient Asia Minor. And that third map that's in your handout shows you the route of that road. 
Now, it's a little hard to see, but this is the only map on which I could show it to you. If you find Ephesus there on the left-hand side of the map, you'll notice that out of Ephesus comes a kind of thin gray line that goes northeast as it leaves the city. And the reason it goes that direction and not straight over to Colossae is because of that mountain range, which is shaded in between. So they went through the valley rather than to try to go over that mountain. And you'll notice that that road eventually comes down to Hierapolis and then down to Colossae. And then from Colossae, it goes northeast again up towards Antiochia in about in the middle of that map. And then it gets a... a, a, a a Trans-Asia Minor trunk route that goes all the way over, if you follow it, it goes all the way over through Nazianzus, Gregory of Nazianzus, the Christian church father, and and makes its way to Militine on the far right side of your map, and Militine is on the Euphrates River. Okay, now I don't know whether you were able to follow me, but... It, you, that that road winds a little bit of, uh, on the way, but nonetheless, that is a major across Asia Minor route, and it was heavily traveled not only for commercial purposes but also for military purposes. And I'll comment on that in a minute. All right. Now the point of this is to realize that Colossae is not a backwoods village; it is a major Greco-Roman city. It's a wealthy Greco-Roman city. It is a cultured Greco-Roman city. There is a lot going on in this city in the time, from the time of its foundation to the time of its destruction during the, probably the Ottoman Turkish Empire. All right, so uh, a lot of traffic flowing through this city. A lot of traffic with all of that means to that traffic, whether it was travel, tourists, whether it was commercial, whether it was trade-related, whether it was military, whether it was religious, whatever. There's a lot of activity in this city from its connection to the rest of the Greco-Roman world. And that brings us to the religion in Colossae. before Christianity and besides Christianity was the Greco-Roman pantheon. Now, by pantheon, we mean all the gods of the Greco-Roman cult that were worshipped besides the emperor himself, although we're a little early for emperor worship, though in the eastern provinces of the Roman Empire, the emperor was worshipped publicly before he was worshipped as a god in Rome itself. It wasn't until the later first century Roman emperors like Domitian that the emperors demanded to be worshipped in Rome. Even in the early part of the first century, they were embarrassed about being treated as a god while they were alive. But after they were dead, it was okay to treat them as a god. But sooner or later, you get over that. You know, if you've got a big ego, sooner or later, you don't mind being called a messiah or whatever else. The, the term may be. <clears throat> and so when people want to worship you while you're alive, you're happy to say, oh, well, you know, you know, I'd rather get it before I'm dead. So, so it, it's just in the nature of <clears throat> the, the, the pride and egocentrism, of narcissism of political leaders, etc. All right. And <clears throat> Caesar was no different. The Caesars were no different. <clears throat> but at any rate, the, 
the uh, plethora of the pagan gods was common in uh, Colossae as the surface excavations or the surface findings have indicated and the testimony of the ancient texts. But there were some favored gods which were local deities. <clears throat> the one was the river god of the Lycus River. Yes, they worshipped the god who dwelt in the river. <clears throat> this is typical of uh, animistic cultures, shamanistic cultures. They worship the natural forces. <clears throat> this river god is portrayed on coins which have been recovered from the region around Colossae. So we know that this is an accurate identification of a particular deity that was favored. <clears throat> so when you see that river on Yamauchi's map, <clears throat> that river was worshipped as a god, even as the ancient Egyptians worshipped the Nile River as a god the reason that Moses' first miracle is to condemn and judge that river by cursing it. Whose God is God? Well, it's Yahweh who is the true God. He can curse the God of Egypt. He can't do anything about purifying the Nile River. All right, anyway, you get the point. Now, there's another popular uh, uh, Greek cult here in Colossae, and that's the cult of Sybil, whom you would know as a result of the New Age movement years ago as Gaia, or Gia, G-I-A, the mother goddess, the earth goddess. There are still people in the United States that still worship her. Uh, so that was a revival of the ancient uh, Gaia cult, uh, which was present in Colossae in the first century. And last of all, but not least of all, is the cult of Artemis, or Diana. Diana of the Ephesians, as she's called in Acts chapter 19, where Paul had that run-in with the silversmiths <clears throat> during his uh, stay in uh, Ephesus. She's the goddess of the hunt, that is, the goddess of a successful hunting expedition, and she's called Artemis in Greek, Diana in, uh, in Roman or Latin, and consequently uh, much favored uh, throughout this whole region, not just in Ephesus, but also Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea as well. Now, that mound, which has not been excavated, undoubtedly contains the remains of a temple or two. I would say a temple or perhaps maybe 20 or 30, because there were shrines <clears throat> to uh, all of these deities uh, uh, throughout the city. That's typical of a pagan city at this time in history. A Greco-Roman culture had Greco-Roman gods all over the place, shrines all over the place. <clears throat> so uh, that uh, goal, that is not only to find the location of the central temple in Colossae, but find out who the central deity was, would be one objective of an excavation of that mound. Uh, does it ever come to pass? Now, next of all is the military presence in Colossae. I've already uh, uh, noted that this road that passed through Colossae was a road used for travel, and part of that travel was military travel. The soldiers of the Roman Empire marching across Asia Minor to Parthia, which is modern-day Persia or Iran and Iraq in the ancient world. The frontiers of the Roman Empire in the east, all the way east of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, which means that they had to have roads 
that could transport those troops and their materiel in those directions. So there was a military bivouac in Colossae, and that's been identified on the basis of remnants that have been found on the surface and dug out over the years by farmers and so on. So this military bivouac chose Colossae because of its ideal location and situation. What does a military bivouac need? It needs a road. It needs a major road, and so Colossae qualified. It needs wood, and you saw from those green hillsides in that photograph I showed you, this is still a very green forested area, at least particularly on the mountain slopes, and there was plenty of wood 2,000 years ago in Colossae, and that's another reason for this military bivouac in the city. A military bivouac needs fresh water. The Lycus River was full of fresh water. And a military bivouac needs a food supply. And as I've indicated, this valley produced grain and fruits and pigs and sheep in abundance. So there was plenty to take care of a military battalion. And consequently, the Roman military did occupy Colossae over the course of its history. That leaves the culture. Oh, incidentally, I should make a point here about part of the text of Colossians. If you have your Bible open, chapter 2, verse 5, has a phrase. It's actually a single word in the Greek. Chapter 2, verse 5, translated... I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline, the New American Standard, which, as you know, is my preferred my preferred version. <clears throat> your good discipline. That's one word in Greek. The Greek word is taxis, T-A-X-I-S, transliterated, which is a military term. It is used to indicate a military formation which is in good order a battle line or a military line of maneuver which is all orderly and under good discipline. Does the fact that Paul uses the term here endorse or elaborate upon the military character of Colossae, at least the fact that it was used for military purposes of refueling, reconnoitering, transporting, etc.? That's a likely suggestion It is an unusual Greek word because it indicates this military style and consequently Paul may have been aware of the military background or the military context of Colossae and so he uses the word. All right, in closing then for this afternoon, comments about the culture of the city. As you can see, we've got a city which is vibrant and alive. It's alive in terms of commerce, industry, religion, military presence, and now culture, meaning specifically the theater and the baths. The theater and the baths. Now, there will be a theater uncovered in this mound at Colossae. There's already the outline of it on that mound So they know in general where it is. But the theater was the social center of the city. And in the theater, 
the dramas of tragedy and comedy would be presented from Greek texts and Roman texts, so there would be that type of entertainment. But also in that theater, there would be gladiator games, the horrendous murdering of human beings for sport. Yes, in the major cities of the Roman Empire, not just in the Colosseum at Rome, not just in the capital city, but in the major cities of the Roman Empire, blood sports entertained the audiences. It is horrendous as people watching a bull die a slow death as somebody sticks swords into it, and you call that sport. That's not sport. That's murder of an animal for no reason whatsoever. But here, the murder of slaves, the murder of criminals, the murder of other human beings, the murder of people trained for the games so that people could benefit, they could profit, so the owners of them could profit from it. Murdering people in cold blood for sport. Horrendous depravity. And yet we're so civilized, right? So we've got the United Boxing League, where you can watch on television and beat one another to a pulp. And we call that sport, and we even bet on it. And we get thousands of people going pay money to see it. And TV channels that carry it. Yeah, give me a break. That is ugly, ugly stuff. All right, finally, the baths. In Roman culture, public baths were uh, important to physical and social welfare. Now, it is true that they had therapeutic benefit, but they also had civic benefit. It's not quite like Japanese culture, but it is similar to it. Both warm and cold baths. Yes, they were sophisticated enough to have learned how to heat their baths and to keep them temperate, once again, for the therapeutic benefit. So underneath this mound, it is undoubtedly, it will undoubtedly be found that, that there will be baths there because they have already found baths or the remnants of baths in Laodicea and Hierapolis. All right, now there's a kind of uh, narrative overview of the city to which Paul writes this epistle. It is a bustling, bustling little city. It is very alive with the culture of its world, and that culture is pagan. Into that pagan world and view, world and life view comes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is received in faith by believers in Colossae. And Paul writes to commend them in their faith, but also to warn them. And the, the, the heart of what he is warning them about will be part of our object in exploring this epistle for the precise error which he is after is still unknown. So we make guesses as we go. And you're welcome to join the guesswork as you think through the words of the epistle. One thing is certain. 
this is not the Galatian heresy. This is not the Judaizers of Galatia. But does that mean it's entirely non-Jewish? Not necessarily. All right, well, we'll have a chance to comment on those as we go. Next week, Lord willing, we'll begin the first chapter looking at the verses in detail. If you have any questions now, I'll be glad to entertain them. Otherwise, next week, same time, same station. Be glad to see you all again. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are amazed at the life of this apostle whom you raised up as one born out of due time to be the greatest of your apostolic servants and are privileged to read his words given under the direction of your spirit and the inspiration of the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray that as we think about these words, that we will understand the story behind them. A narrative which is meshed with the narrative of a city to which you sent your servant Epaphras and your spirit to accompany his words. O Lord, in the paganism of our own world, we pray for your servants who bear your spirit to go with power into the world to call the dead to life, sinners to repentance, and the condemned to justification. We pray it, Lord, asking that you will bless their labors wherever they work, in this community, in this nation, in this hemisphere, in this world of ours, so that Jesus Christ may be praised and honored and loved as he was in Colossae. And so we ask these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.